the idea that you're going to apply to 10, 15, 20 schools, it's just, it's incredibly inefficient system. And by the way, even when you make the choice, you don't know if it's the right choice. You've based it on maybe a visit or two, talking to a few people, the rankings. Could we imagine a system though, where you open up your portfolio to colleges and universities and colleges see what you've mastered and when you've mastered it, they have more data on the students. You have more data on the institution and the types of students that are succeeding there, and you start to match each other. In March 2020, students across the country shifted to an unprecedented learning model as they logged onto their computers to attend classes on Zoom, forcing educators to quickly rethink how to effectively teach students in this new paradigm. As our education institutions worked to shift their models, the longstanding flaws and inequities in our system were put on full display. Now, two years later, we're working to fully understand the impacts of this disruption to student learning. What has happened to our students over the past two years? What have we learned from this experience and what changes are necessary in order to prepare today's students to succeed in this fast-changing world? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the past few weeks, we have spoken with researchers and change agents who are working to rethink our education system and provide better opportunities and outcomes for all students. Today, for the final episode in this special series, I'm joined by prominent education advocates and hosts of the Future You podcast, that's you as in university, Michael Horn and Jeff Salingo, to discuss the future of not only colleges and universities, but of the K-12 pipeline that delivers students to their doorstep. Very excited to talk to you both. So as Michael and I were talking before, Jeff, and I told him last night, I had read part of your book over the weekend, but I read the rest of it yesterday. So I got it two weeks ago, and my son has just gone through the application process to colleges, and I couldn't open it because I couldn't read. I couldn't read it. Well, I was like, while we were going through the process because I didn't know if it was going to make me nervous or excited. And so I had to wait until he had been accepted somewhere before I could open it up and finish reading it. So that means he was accepted somewhere then? He did get accepted somewhere, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So that's the good news. But, you know, I want to talk to you about colleges and universities in America and why does it feel so different from when you know, when I applied to college back in the 90s, it just felt like a very different thing. The world felt very different. How people went to school, what happened after we graduated from school felt very different. Am I I right about that? Or am I just old? And (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to make any comment on being old. As as Michael knows, I just celebrated my 50th birthday. So I I just entered the the new decade. Uh, and But it is different. It is different for Gen X parents who are raising Gen Z kids for the most part. And it's different in, in three key ways. I think one is our, our concept of distance has changed even since the 1980s and early 1990s. I remember when my sister was in college in the 80s, you know, we would have to call her on a payphone in the dorm room hallway after 10 o'clock at night to get the lower long distance rates. And so for a child going to school in California from Massachusetts, that really literally seemed on the other side of the world where today, because of discount airlines and the internet and everything else, you know, it seems like it's next door. And so what ended up happening is that regional universities and even many of these big time universities now were just more regional in some ways back then. They're now getting applicants from all over the world. And the students are applying 
to the same set of schools from all over the world. And so you're getting the best students from Boston and Miami and LA and in China and, and France and whatever, all applying to the same set of schools. So that's one big difference is this change in, in distance. Second is the Common App, the rise of the Common App, which now has more than a thousand institutions on it, and it's on the internet. So I don't know what it was like when you applied, but I had to apply in an old-fashioned typewriter. I had to typewriter, type different yeah. applications, right? Different applications for different schools. So you know, to be honest with you, I got tired after four or five, and I said that's enough. Well, now the average is eight, nine, ten, and now increasingly during COVID, we know of kids applying to fifteen plus schools much easier when you can press a button. And then a third, I though is I think a change in culture. Right? I think that we feel that opportunity is increasingly scarce, and we want to make sure that if you come from a privileged background, you want to make sure your kids grow up in the same kinds of neighborhoods that you grew up in and have all the same opportunities that, that they've had, that their kids will have. And so I think what ends up happening is that you think, well, there's only this set of schools, I think this is wrong, by the way, that mm-hmm. there's only this small set of schools that provide that opportunity. We're not quite sure they do, but we think they do. We think that a degree from a highly selective place is the only thing that constitutes that. And so we all kind of strive to get into that same set of schools. So I do think it's different. And I think it's different in those three key ways. How did they become the schools? (laughs) Well, some of it is just pure history, right? Sure. Like the Ivy Leagues were the schools. Right. As Richard Freeland, who's the former president of Northeastern, which has tremendously has changed over the last 20 years, as he said, you know, we were walking along the gates near Harvard there. And he said, you know, Harvard is just Harvard because it's been around forever. And, you know, so if you're a fairly new university, it's hard to break into that club because you don't have centuries of history. You were there before the founding of the country. So I think that's a little bit of it, is a little bit of the history of elitism and of elite institutions in in the country. And then I think a number of other schools, they were both strategic in their operations and in their marketing. So I would put in that category, Northeastern, NYU, University of Southern California, George Washington University, right? Mm-hmm. There's a number of universities that over the last 25, 30 years have remade their image in the minds of the public as more selective institutions, as better institutions. And suddenly that starts to spread and every year they become a little bit more selective. And Michael, how does this impact K through 12? Does what has happened on the university side in terms of there being this like primary pack of institutions that you should get into in order to have this perfect life, right? Which seems like such great American imagination kind of stuff. Has that impacted the way education works on the K through 12 side? Yeah, absolutely, I think, in, in, in a few key respects. First, it's absolutely the case that through the even early 1980s, you could get a great middle-class job going through a career technical education track, voc tech track, right, in high school and land in a job. And, and Jeff's written about this really well, I think, in terms of, you know, globalization technology just changed that. It hollowed out that pathway, if you will, into the middle class. And the message from employers and society basically said, 
college for all. That's basically the only way in. I, I guess the military can get a few of you, but that's really a very small percentage. And it created a single track. And in American high schools, the result of that was to eliminate a lot of these other courses or pathways or options about discovering who you are and what you wanted to become to create this very narrow race on the academic tracks around AP classes, around your SAT scores, around all this running sort of zero-sum game against each other on a very narrow set of metrics and all with that focus on well, did you get into a name brand school that we think has more value than than other schools out there, than the other 3,800 of them or whatever the number would be? And so I think that changed the culture of the high schools in many ways, but it also changed the actual classes and preparation and demands from parents in many ways. And I can still remember my dad saying, you know, in high school, looking at the potential options and saying, oh, you don't want to take that course because colleges won't look at that as a serious academic course. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> and so even that he would say that, right, and we'd have these attitudes, ironically, statistics, right, is not seen as sort of a an academic rigor course, right? You want to do the algebra and the calculus sort of pathway, ironically, because statistics and data analysis and data visualization, et cetera, way more useful in your day-to-day in terms of the workforce. But these legacies of the college impact on our K-12 schools are enduring. I was reading Jeff's book last night, and then, of course, then I had to go into U.S. News and World Reports and started looking at all the rankings and everything. I was becoming a little bit obsessed by the middle of the night. But then I went and said, well, how, how come so many of these schools are failing then? Because we're only educating, what, 30% of American kids are going to school? Is that right? And less than, it, it looks like, the, I saw one stat that said there are a million fewer students who applied to college in the fall of 20 and 21, and that the, it's declined every year since the pandemic. Is that correct? The height of undergraduate enrollment in the U.S. was about 10 years ago. I think we had something like 18 million or something like that. We're down to about 15 million, I think. Or, or something like that. We lost about 1.3 million overall in enrollment during the, the pandemic and about six in 10 high school graduates, six in 10 students who graduate from high school. So not all high school students yeah. go on to college right after high school. And that number has declined a little bit in the last couple of years. But why? I don't understand the decline because the colleges exist it seems to be like the ethos in America that you like you go to college, it means a better life, it means a better job, it means better outcomes. So is it cost or is it students aren't finding their way to that school or are we all, we're only going to go for the Ralph Lauren of colleges and if we have to shop at Target, then we're not going to do, I don't like, what is going on? Michael and I, I think both have similar and different viewpoints on this. There, there's yeah. a lot going on, to be honest with you. I don't think we quite understand it. I think some of this is short-term because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Students didn't go to college because in some places it wasn't in person and they weren't quite prepared for it. But I think there's a lot more going on beyond that. And I think largely, especially for lower income students and even increasingly middle income students, it's increasingly out of reach for them or they feel like it's out of reach for them even if they could qualify for financial aid. And so they never even try, they never even apply. And a lot of that has to do with bad advice in in high school that they're getting. I think some of it is also the job market is so strong. I was with the head of SHRM last night, Johnny Taylor, and he was talking about how 
wage inflation right now in jobs that don't require college degrees, he believes is really pushing this in, in ways because students now could get jobs paying 15, 20, $25 an hour without a college degree, which couldn't happen a couple of years ago. I think the thing I'm most interested in is in the neighborhoods where Michael and I live, where parents have thought highly of education for a long time. The questioning, not of not going to college at all, but the questioning of are certain institutions, as you're asking, there's so many institutions out there, are certain institutions really worth it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, from my perspective, there's been a real sea change in the last decade where I feel like Jeff and I were going into education conferences and having debates about a decade ago of, you know, the value of college and things of that nature. And in the last 10 years in Lexington, people come up to me and they say, you know, kids like roughly my kid's age, and they say, well, my kids need to go to college in 10 years from now. And you just never would have heard that, right, 10 years ago. That that just never would have been in the water. So I think a few things have happened. One, the continuing rise in prices and underlying costs of higher education has, to, to Jeff's point, at least in perception, it has priced some people out of the market. I, I think in many cases, they're not actually priced out, but it's given the perception that it has. A bunch of people have become in some ways, overly practical, I think, about what they're seeking out of college, right? And they're sort of saying, well, why do I need to get that degree if what I'm really going to go is into the workforce and computer science and I'll just go to a coding boot camp? And so you've seen a lot of alternatives pop up, right, that have created in the minds of many other ways into the job market. You see a renewed interest in apprenticeships. You see a lot of employers like Google and other tech companies and, and now state governments saying, we won't require the degree for lots of entry jobs. And then I think the other piece is so much of the conversation around debt, I think has scared a lot of individuals from even looking at it. A lot of the conversations around debt are seeking to try to make it more affordable. But I think the message has been in some ways the opposite, <laughs> that it's this sort of service or product that is so expensive, beware, because there's all these catches or traps that you might fall into, and you, you, you don't want to be one of those students. And so I think there's sort of a lore that's built up where people have become very, on, on both the right and the left, have become much more skeptical of our higher ed institutions at all stratas of income levels. And so I think that's part of it. And, and then the last thing I'd say is, and it is also true that at the top, those selective elite institutions never been better. <laughs> and like demand has never been more. You know, they're getting more applications per spot. Their selectivity is lower than it's ever been. It's more competitive. And so, you know, some of this is a little bit of a story of the rich are getting richer. And those schools that are at the, maybe not the bottom, but the middle to bottom are struggling much more. And so that's part of this dynamic, I think, that's going on as well. And fundamentally, to Jeff's point, we also don't fully know what happened to those 1.3 million would-be students still, and I think we still need to see what happens. I think that's such a good point that we shouldn't lose is where did these 1.3 million students go? Because there was there was no one there catching them. I mean, we, we were barely in school across America when we, when we graduated that first class, and we, we, we then flooded education with ESSER funding, and none of it went to those kids. And there's no one there to hold them. We graduated an entire class, maybe two classes of folks in lots of places in this district. We didn't hold them accountable at all. You could graduate no matter what, just based on you being a senior. 
We didn't worry about whether or not we felt like you were ready for the world. And we didn't provide any support or funding. We didn't help you get into college. Many fewer kids went to college out of this district in that year. Yeah. And this is a systemic problem. You know, I would argue in high schools, the graduation rate has soared in the last 10 years in America's high schools. Mm-hmm as the requirements to show mastery over what you've learned have dropped. And so you essentially, I mean, look, the graduation problem in my mind is a very uninteresting problem to solve because I can just print diplomas as quick as the next person can print them. The more interesting question is, did you learn the skills and knowledge that you need to thrive and do well when you leave? And I think that's the other part of this as well. A lot of colleges are not built to serve students who have knowledge and skill gaps they don't do as well with those students. And the graduation rates, I think where you got the three and 10 number, that's sort of who gets through the system. It's a haircut of about 45% don't graduate within six years. That's the other piece of this. I think a lot of families say, if I take out a little bit of debt and I don't graduate, that is not a good investment of time. And so that's the other piece of this. So how do companies play into this though then? Because One, are they still kind of building a belief system around maybe the top 100 colleges and universities and they're still hiring students out of those schools sort of at a standard pace or lots of tech companies, right? Isn't it ultimately going to be easier for them to just figure out ways to find folks who have the propensity to deliver on their goals and objectives and start training them? We need to take the tech sector and probably move that aside because okay. there's certifications and other ways like Google and others. For example, I was with IBM last night and they were just talking about how they have all these certifications and on internal systems when they're promoting people and hiring people, they can see all that, right? They can see all those badges and things like that. What I'm interested in is whether those certifications and badges, in other words, alternatives to the degree, not in addition to the degree, help people be mobile outside of companies, not only move up within the company, but can they be mobile outside the company? Because it's my belief still that despite all the rhetoric about, oh, you don't need a college degree, you need these certifications, that at the end of the day, that people who hire, because eventually the applicant tracking system moves to a human being who actually interviews somebody, that they're going to talk to somebody who has a college degree, talk about their experiences and things like that. And that's where I think the degree really helps. So we could see all these governors and all these other employers, even outside the tech sector, saying we're going to reduce the requirements for degrees. That's all fine and good. But I want to know in the data, well, how many of these people, A, are they hiring? B, how many of these people survive and thrive in those jobs a year, two years in? How many of those people are promoted? over time at that company? And what is the mobility outside of that company? Because in all, I think that's what the degree provides, at least for now. And while these other certifications might help you get in the door, do they help you get up and out eventually? Jeff and I probably disagree less than he thinks we do here. But the, uh, <laughs> but the, I think the counter to that would be can employers start to move toward, you know, become more articulate about what they're actually looking for? And so stop anchoring, right, as much on signals of competence as opposed to actual evidence, if you will, of being able to do the job well. And that if they do more training, more apprenticeships, more, I used to be at Guild Education, more partnerships with organizations like that to train up their frontline workers. Does that create that sort of mobility and create almost a new set of currency in the job market over time? 
I confess I'm very skeptical that outside of tech and digital skills, that skills-based hiring will become much of a thing. Um, because I really? think we just don't... Like, well, I, I just think outside of tech... So tech, yes. But like but what? Outside but of finance? Tech, media? Maybe finance, maybe finance. But the big observation is... So let me say it this way. Where it's not rules based, or we don't understand what leads to what in a good employee. Like, give um, me an I'm example. Very skeptical. We we don't have any sense of the soft skills that actually contribute to a good employee in most environments. Most really? employers are extremely. They list critical thinking, writing, uh, communication, et cetera, but they have no sense of the proportion or how to measure it or how to value it. Employers, you, you think about when you write a job description in your HR departments, they copy the previous one, they look at the competitors, they take a few more things over, they look at stuff. They haven't done the actual cognitive task analysis work because it takes time <laughs> to actually look at what do people do and what does that mean for skills. I'm working on a book now about helping individuals choose better careers. But on the employer side, I would say one of my conclusions is I think they should just write what people will do in the job, <laughs> what like the actual tasks will, and then let the would-be employees show evidence that they've done those actual sorts of things or that they can do those things. And then the schools or the training organizations should figure out, okay, what does that mean? Are the skills and things of that at the, at, at the heart of this? All right. Let me push on this for a second, though, because Jeff, in your book, you have a section about this. You're talking about, I think it's at the beginning of the book. I can't remember which university. You're inside the admissions process and they're moving kids from the accepted pile to the rejected pile and then the waitlist pile. And, and you're just talking about how that factors around. And they're considering one particular girl, I think, who had two tags, one because her her somebody was employed by the university. And also, I think maybe she had gone to a good school, a school where they had received a number of good students from or something like that. But then when they reviewed, she had written in that she wanted to pursue biology and you noted the discussion was, well, she's not showing in her transcript right. that it she had- It was not only biology, it was neuroscience. Neuroscience, right? okay. Right. That, I mean, I actually think a high school student might be able to demonstrate some skills in biology. Name me, find me a student who could do that in neuroscience at the age yeah. of 17 or 18. I, I was just shell-shocked in sitting and listening to this conversation. I mean, that's what, that's what this has come to. Your writing compelled me to be shell-shocked as well, though, because, <laughs> and I don't know about you guys, but like, I graduated, I, I went to Providence College, I played Division One soccer. That was like my pull there, right? And I got, I got some level of a scholarship to do that. And then I moved to Japan and I taught English, and I studied pottery, much to the chagrin of my engineering father, who then, when I came back, introduced me to this Japanese woman who he had hired to consult for them, who I worked for for a year, and one of her companies was a media company who was fast-tracking a lot of work in the internet, and ended up doing a number of startups. That was my circuitous, crazy, wonderful trajectory. And by the way, I was an English major, which everybody laughs at. And so how, like, why would they ever, how can we, how can we potentially, how can we possibly be looking at high school kids transcripts and deciding whether or not they will do well in neuroscience? It's, it's crazy to me. It, it, it is crazy. And, and I think it <laughs> Maybe comes this down is why to... I didn't sleep last night, by the way, Jeff. I think it's your fault. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that was Emory, by the way, uh, Emory. Emory University, Emory. right? Yeah. Which is, has very good STEM programs. And I think this goes back to what you just said about English. We have seen a massive 
fleeing of students and would-be students from the humanities over the last decade, mostly into STEM fields and business because parents and students perceive, I believe incorrectly, that the only good jobs out there are in those fields. And so what ends up happening is that not only have we seen this huge increase in applications overall to these selective colleges, they're mostly in certain fields. And so the bar to get in just keeps going up and up and up. And at the same time, these institutions all also have all these other priorities, which include diversifying their classes in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of geography. So they're the playing field is not level either, right? So in this student's case, they think, well, she comes from a more privileged background in terms of her family. She comes from a good high school. She should show that because she has access to that, where a student from a lower resourced high school might not, may not even have access to AP courses. They have to show something different in their application. And it just gets into the inherent, not unfairness, because I'm not quite sure that you know college admissions was ever fair, But this inherent belief that we think college admissions is a meritocracy, it wasn't. It never was, and it never will be. Colleges are businesses. They have to fill their classes in certain ways with different people, depending on their needs. Some colleges need more full-pay students. Other colleges don't care as much about that because they sit on tens of billions of dollars of endowment. And so they have these needs, and they fill them through admissions. It's not a fair process. It makes me wonder, though, It seems like there's the potential for us as a country to really cut to the chase here. I mean, with with AI making the strides that it is, I I heard, Michael, I heard on one of your other podcasts talking, you talking about chat GPT. And I I loved that discussion. I was so excited by it because I I sit on the board of another school and they were definitely having a freak out moment when chat GPT was introduced. Like, oh my God, how are we ever going to grade papers anymore? But I can't remember if you wrote this or was a different article, but Someone was referring to a math teacher who kind of leaned in and said, ha ha, you humanities folks have finally got yours because the calculator did this. Calculator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrific. So, but given the pace at which technology is moving, is there like, does K through 12 in any way feel like the onus is on them to recraft and rethink kind of quickly? like the paradigm of education in America so that we can take advantage, we can move kids through a system where they find, like like they discover themselves and discover the things that would compel them to be, you know, that, that they want to be good at and pursue so that we can grab onto these technologies. I mean, because it may really change the way universities work if kids are much better set up for success by the time we graduate them into the world at, at, you know, 12th grade. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with where you're going, Jill, which is, I think, much earlier, you know, there's a foundation in Boston, ASA, American Student Assistance, right, that spends a lot of time working with middle schools around helping individuals start to develop a sense of what are the different career pathways out there? What are the different opportunities? How do I build social capital and things like that? And just awareness. And then into high school, it's not to create recreate the Vogue Tech track that we talked about earlier, but instead to say all students actually ought to be having this mix of where they're working in professional opportunities and getting opportunities to say, this is what I want to go learn more of and having that inform their coursework. And frankly, you know, one of the big things I advocate for 
is moving to a mastery based learning model where yeah. you where time becomes the variable and you move on upon mastery of 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 content and to me that doesn't necessarily mean you know, we'd all run at the exact same curriculum and see who can get there fastest. What it might say is like, you might get super geeked out by, you know, nutrition science, right? And so great, you'll go deep there. And there's a, a, a nonprofit called the Mastery Transcript Consortium that can start to represent what you have mastered and show evidence of, of that. And you could easily imagine then a college maybe saying, let me find people who've gone super deep on this set of things because that's, that's what we want to specialize in. And by the way, that would be great for colleges if they started differentiating instead of all trying to look the same. And that would create, I think, a healthier ecosystem there as well. I think you're right. So when you bring up Mastery Base, of course, we we interviewed Selcon a couple of weeks ago for this podcast series, and he talks a lot about Mastery Based learning as well. And, you know, he's doing some incredibly innovative things in education, and I think he's doing them well. You guys would probably be a better judge of that than me, but it does, I spend a lot of time listening to folks on the philanthropy side of the world talk about how they would love to lean in and help fund whatever would change education to the advantage of students and to the advantage of the country. Bill Gates famously, I heard him speak one time and he said it was easier to solve malaria than to like, transform the K through 12 system. And he was joking, but it, like, should everyone actually be just like casting their lot at Salcon and saying, okay, let's like triple down on him and give him what he needs. He seems to have a vision that it will bring us into the future. What do you think of that idea? And I'm a little bit being facetious, but at the same time, it, it does feel like he's on the cutting edge of where education should be headed. Yeah, I, so I, full disclosure, I'm advisor to Khan Academy, but oh, the okay. uh, nice. but but I'm I'm you know look I'm a huge fan of of Sal's when uh, I set up the Clayton Christensen Institute, and he was just starting Khan Academy. We were like three blocks from each other in Mountain View, California, and we're constantly able to connect then. But look, I think a lot of the principles that he talks about are the ones that should undergird the schools of the future, and. I don't think the right analogy for K-12 education in terms of scale is going to be software engineering. I think it's much more like civil engineering, which is to say there are certain principles that scale, but the contours and the communities in which you're implementing them will cause you to build the bridge slightly differently in San Francisco, where you're proofing it for earthquakes, than Boston, where you're thinking about winter in the Charles River. And so you know, the Khan Academy around the mastery-based learning, for example, is one of those tenets that should undergird all schools, regardless of where they are, but then actually as you implement them in, in the local communities, look, they're going to look different in different places. Certain communities are going to need more supports, more intentional outreach, right, of building social capital, whereas Lexington, where I am, you don't need to do that as much. So that that's fine. The other innovation that I think Sal has done, though, that I think could be part of that is we don't really know how to assess mastery at scale. His site, schoolhouse.world, which gets less attention but is, is a tutoring site is what it's known for, but they basically evaluate mastery of, gee, Michael, you're qualified to tutor in this subject because I do like a five-minute video performance of me solving problems on the platform and others who've been evaluated to be masters of that then assess me and say, yep, indeed, he's mastered that, he can do this. That's a very lightweight and elegant architecture, I think, to do mastery much more broadly across the system, which, by the way, could 
start to unseat some of our standardized tests obsessions and make a much more robust dynamic. Like, I want to know where Michael is on January 31st when we're recording this in this learning. I don't want to wait a year to find out where he was six months earlier, which is the way the current tests work. Yeah. What do you think about that, Jeff? I mean, if we could move to a more mastery-based K-12 through system, one, would it give students a much earlier take on where they want to go and it could potentially shift universities and colleges into kind of rethinking who they are and what they're good at because they there would be a better matching system. And, and then and I think that's the key there. Could there be more of a matching system? Because as you know, going through this admissions process is incredibly inefficient and full of a lot of friction. The idea that you're going to apply to 10, 15, 20 schools when you could only go to one and you're going to maybe get into 10 of them or five of them or whatever. So you're going to have to turn down four, six, 10 and those schools don't know whether you're going to turn them down. You don't know whether you're going to turn them down. It's just, it's incredibly inefficient system. And by the way, even when you make the choice, you don't know if it's the right choice, right? You've based it on maybe a visit or two, talking to a few people, the rankings. Could we imagine a system though, coming in high school where you open up your portfolio to colleges and universities and colleges see what you've mastered and when you've mastered it. They have more data on the students. You have more data on the institution and the types of students that are succeeding there. And you start to match each other. Rather than apply, students are being contacted by institutions that actually want them, where they're a good fit, where they know students like that succeed. So we could also reduce potentially dropouts and increase graduation rates. There's so many things that I think that this can do. And it also takes out what I think is the gaming of the application system. Because if you think right now about the application, we have transcripts, which include grades, which we believe we can't really compare across high schools with 25,000 high schools with different grading schemes. Uh, we have essays that are coached and potentially soon, chat GPT writing them uh, <laughs> for students. We have extracurricular activities, all of which are, you know, the more money you have, the more money you can put into having your kids participate in the right extracurricular activities. And then you have recommendations. And almost nobody wants to give a bad recommendation now to a student. So all of these different pieces of the application are, are not really giving, I believe, a true picture of who the student is. So you guys spend all of your time thinking about education and talking to people who are on the periphery or right in the middle of it. Like, what's your one or two most interesting innovations that you're seeing, either talked about or actually in implementation where you're like, you know what, that has the potential to change things. Are there things that you're running across? Or is it just a stagnant sort of? Oh boy, unmoving? no! <laughs> I'm trying to think which one. To, I'm trying to think which one to privilege and list. Um, uh, yeah. the, uh, well, so I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to be in Africa uh, next week in Sierra Leone and Liberia on the ground because a nonprofit I'm one of the founding board members of Imagine Worldwide. We have our board meetings there because they they work in Africa, basically to help students who are four to age eight who don't have access to schools or schools with, you know, fewer than 200 to one student teacher ratios use offline technology powered by solar to become numerate and literate. We've been doing a ton of randomized control trials on the ground and now starting to move to scale in Malawi and elsewhere. And the early 
results look incredibly promising and for less than 10 bucks a day. And so I'm, I'm incredibly excited about what that could do. In the future, you layer on some smart artificial intelligence on top of that. What else could we do? I think, I think the story gets very interesting, particularly given you, you would know more about this than I would. But I think the theory of many people is that we're going to be moving a lot of the computing power back to the local devices with AI right. as opposed to having it done in the cloud. Right. That actually benefits this trend potentially in some ways. So for the lower kids, I'm really excited about that. Wait, can you see that innovation be, can you see a transfer of that happening here in the U.S.? Is there some version of that that you think could play out? I think, I think standby, right? I think to me, yeah. disruptive innovations start in areas of non-consumption. The dominant looks at it and say, ah, that's, that's not all that good, right? I mean, you could tell that story about Wayfair. The, the high end, you say, well, no, I, I still need to go in my furniture store. I couldn't possibly buy on furniture on, yep. on, right? I got I, I to lie in a setting that has nothing to do with my bedroom and see if this <laughs> will actually fit. Turns out, you know, starts there, gets better and better and better and, and changes how we buy furniture. I think the same thing could absolutely be true in this part of the world as well. It just suggests to Bill Gates's point earlier, because there's a fixed installed base, in some ways, the really big transformations are just really hard in the traditional U.S. system. Right. Is it a problem that we are not, are we training teachers for the old education system as opposed to preparing them? Because they're the infrastructure, right? Yeah, I'm super worried about this. Is there something that should be done there? To be supportive of teacher training and, and the future of education that, you know, we set the trajectory in the right direction. It's a really challenging puzzle because most teacher training occurs, frankly, in state regional schools. And the curriculum is made up based on what the faculty member their research or their area of expertise has been, not necessarily what we need to be training for, right? And so and so I don't know my way out of this, but there have been a number of new teacher training schools and institutes, you know, Reach University or Relay Graduate School of Education or Summit Public Schools has one or High Tech High has one that create these alternative degree paths or, or training paths into the classroom. Is that the future? Do we need to do something more concerted with the schools of education? I'm not 100% sure how this plays out, but it seems to me kind of unfair, frankly, that we're asking teachers to cope in these new worlds and we haven't given them the methodologies, let alone even taught them the basics of the science of reading, for example, which turns out is, is devastating that we haven't prepared them correctly. I totally agree. I mean, right now we're so concerned about mental health here at this foundation. And when we started to think about, okay, what's the delivery system in schools to kind of lower the tenor of like this rising anxiety and stress and depression that kids are carrying. And then you go in and you do the surveys with teachers and you they're carrying the same set of stressors, you know, maybe for different reasons, but it's actually the whole thing is like on high anxiety and probably for a variety of different reasons. And and part of it, I think, like no one understands their brains. And so, you know, like, like there's a piece of, there's just some things that we should be giving to teachers in terms of brain science, in terms of the things that you just said that would help level set, you know, around, okay, how do we, how do we run a classroom? How do we, you know, kind of help keep kids focused? How do I keep myself healthy? And what, you know, what things are going to be available to students so I, we don't need to focus on those things? What are the really important things for kids to know in the next, you know, 
30, 40 years. I, yeah, I completely agree 100%. And before Jeff jumps in with his 30 seconds on this, the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at, at Arizona State, I think is doing some incredibly important work around starting to create co-teaching environments in schools where it's larger classrooms of students, but with more adults in the room. And what I think that does is one creates more room for specialization in different things. Like maybe I love geeking out on data. You're great at doing small group tutoring and we can play off each other, but it also creates more slack in the system. So you know, I have a sick kiddo at home. I can't be there. Okay, it's okay. We don't have to like rush to find the substitute teacher who doesn't know the lesson plan and the kids. We've got two other humans in there. It's okay. Or you need to take a mental health day or you want to invest in your own learning to be prepared for what to do with chat GPT in the classroom. That's okay. We've created a system with Slack, which you think about it, no other professional part of our economy do we have such a rigid system that is so reliant on all 3.5 million or whatever teachers being there by themselves every single day. It's, it's absurd. It's absurd. I totally agree with you. Over to you, Jeff. <laughs> so in terms of, in terms of what I see as the most kind of some of the most innovative pieces, and I agree with Michael, I, I hate to like list the most innovative or among the most innovative, but one of the things I'm interested in, given the, this conversation is the idea of embedded certificates, certifications, and badges within the degree. Because mm. I think one of the problems that you pointed out earlier is that we have two problems, I think, right now in the pathway into higher ed and the pathway through higher ed. One is the one you mentioned earlier, is that students are not completing. Four-year graduation rate, six-year graduation rate, you know, we're only talking about maybe 50% of students completing. We have you know a quarter of students we're losing after freshman year of, of, of college. And they leave with essentially a bunch of credits and debt, in some cases, that have carry really no currency in the job market. So if you're embedding some certificates or certifications, and this is where I think maybe the tech industry and others can help, at least they come out and they have something to show for their education rather than just those bunch of credits that don't carry any currency in the job market. And maybe they're able to get a job. Maybe that encourages them to come back to college to finish that degree. Because I, I think the degree is still necessary overall for hiring, but maybe you could at least get that first job with some sort of certification certificate or badge. And in addition, it's a degree plus eventually, right? So if you get a degree and you get these certifications, I think it just makes you, it differentiates you in the job market. So I think that to me is one of the most interesting things happening in the job market now. And the other thing about these certifications or these certificates is that it also allows students to try out college rather than have to mm. commit to four years. So there's an interesting thing happening at Arizona State University where in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a special advisor. They have this new partnership with YouTube and Crash Course where they are putting freshman year level courses on YouTube allowing students to try them out in high school or even try them out after high school. They could then pay later on after they take the course as many times as they want to get credit for those. Those credits could then translate into Arizona State University credits that you could then transfer to other universities. Again, I think what ends up happening in high school, we're telling students, oh, you have to go to college and you have to commit to this two-year college or this four-year college, which seems to really overwhelm a lot of students. And you also have to pay for that. And by the way, if you don't finish, you, you're not really going to get anything that's going to be useful in the job. So, okay. I, last question I have for you guys, because I've been thinking about this on and off through our whole conversation, and maybe it sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, but in your 
opinions. How much should happiness play into how we rethink education? And the reason I asked this question is the other day, this guy walked into our office and he was super jovial and it ends up he's the exterminator. And he was so excited to bring me outside to show me this thing that he had done to prevent rats from coming into the he would he would have talked about rats and bugs and all kind and it was freaking me out and I don't like really to talk about rats and bugs and so but he was so excited about this and he really I asked him how much he liked his job he loves his job right like he has found a match and he's happy in life and he makes a living and he just he was very joyous I mean he brought a lot of joy into the office and I wonder if we've completely maybe we never had that because we you know when we built our education system it was really to fortify the country and it served a, a very specific purpose but given where technology is going to take us as humankind should we be thinking about happiness as a factor in how we educate kids and deliver on education all the way through the chain so the outcomes you know part of it is that your expectation is that you're happy I, to me, 100% yes. And that may not surprise you given what, what I've shared about my own journey. But I, to me, the root of happiness, I think, is having a sense of purpose. And so you leave high school right now, for example, even leave college, frankly, and a lot of individuals have no sense of purpose. I mean, one of the big shocks to me when we did Choosing College and wrote that it was something Jeff, I think, knew intuitively. I did not, which is that a lot of students are doing, you know, enrolling because they feel like it's the next logical step. It's what they're supposed to do, but they don't know why. Yeah. And if you don't, my read of the happiness literature at a high level is if you haven't developed a sense of purpose, not to say it can't change, but that you have that at, at that point, happiness comes from doing work that is fulfilling and in line with your purpose. And yeah. To me, I just think we need to spend way more time much, much earlier with individuals, helping them understand that and then find that. Yeah. And figure out how to deliver on it. Because it was a metric, I think, for every board of ed and every mayor and every city manager. Like, like that, you know, one of the outcomes of education had to be happiness. And when we had metric, a like, way to measure that, I just think it would be a game changer. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, agreed. I, I think that there are two two pieces of the student experience post high school that are absolutely critical for this generation or for all generations of students. And one is, as Michael mentioned, purpose. You know, why am I here? And, and second is belonging. Do I fit in here? Do I find my people? Whether that's classmates, whether that's mentors, whether that's faculty members, whoever they are. And if you don't find those people, you're going to say, and you don't really have a sense of purpose for being there, what are you going to do? You're not going to stay. This has been great. You guys, I, I could ask you questions all day long. Maybe we can do this again. This is, I really appreciate it. This is fun. I would love to. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Michael Horn and Jeff Salingo. Michael and Jeff's work highlights the need for innovation at all levels of our education system, and their podcast is helping to change the narrative around higher ed. We hope that you enjoyed this special series of Catalyst for Change. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.